Good morning. Good morning. I do have a voice that tends to project, so if you have to hold your ears, that's fine. I understand. Um, my name is. Uh, oh, oh. Is it on? Good. All right. Again, my name is uh, Chuck Williams, my bride of 30 years, Celia. We live here in Fayetteville. We have ever since uh, 2005. When I retired from the military in 2018, we decided to go to Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, embark on a degree program. Uh, one of the surprising things, and Charles asked me before the service, that if I could say something with a Scottish accent, this might sound a wee bit more Presbyterian. Um, I don't know if I can do that, but one of the things we experienced over there, uh, and it might be a UK thing, but we found it particularly in Scotland, is that if you say something that tickles their ear, they will say, oh, that's brilliant. Folks, I'm from New Jersey. I have never been called brilliant. <laughs> and after a few weeks in Scotland and hearing that maybe about five or six times, I thought I could live here. This is good. Uh, and since we have been back, COVID chased us home about two years ago. Uh, I have yet to be called brilliant. So anyway, so if some of you with a charismatic background, instead of saying praise the Lord or whatever thing I say, just say brilliant. You know. Okay. Um, if you have your... Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, but the thrust of our preaching will focus on 6 verses 1 through 12. Um, and I'm reading from the um, NASB version. But let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for your church. We thank you for your salvation, the redemption of all mankind. Uh, it was something that Jonathan Edwards said was the greatest occasion for the manifestation of the glory of God in both heaven and earth. Lord, thank you for inviting us by your sovereign will to have a place in that glorification of your holy name and holy throne. Holy Spirit, please bring illumination. May my words be crisp, clear, edifying, and full of understanding, and help the ears of everyone here today and through the means of media uh, that they would be edified, lifted up, and built up. Uh, we are dependent upon you. These are just words on a page, unless, Holy Spirit, you bring your power to bear upon what we read and what is preached. Amen. Amen. Today's sermon I've entitled Beyond the Basics from, maturity, from Milk to Maturity in an Age of Acceptable Apostasy. Uh, before I read uh, our text, our sermon today will be addressing one of the most difficult and perplexing questions that Christians in the church have asked. Can a genuine believer fall away after being saved by Christ? For many, Hebrews 6 presents them with what they believe is clear evidence that, yes, Christians can fall away from the faith. This question is of particular urgency as weekly we see and hear of news reports about churches closing their doors, 
how many people are no longer attending the church, how many churches, even denominations, are seeking cultural accommodation at the expense of doctrinal integrity, all to save the falling numbers of their congregations. It is my hope that as we take a more lucid examination of Hebrews 5 and 6, then a clear understanding and answer avails to us that the, the answer is no, no. A genuine Christian who has been saved through the grace of God in faith does not possess the ability to fall away once they have been genuinely regenerate. This is because all true Christians <clears throat> will rest secure in our salvation because of the person and work of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And we will flourish in the assurance of that salvation in our diligence to strengthen that faith through our increasing knowledge of God's word. In other words, a Christian life is one which we are called to go from milk to maturity through our pursuit of understanding the deeper things of God in his word beyond the elementary teachings of our faith. If you want to tag a theme to the sermon, it is that true disciples of Christ will persevere in their salvation with an assurance of their salvation as grounded in the person and work of Christ alone, whereas false believers, though they may be found in the congregation of God's saints, will inevitably, inevitably fall away and demonstrate both an absence of the newness of life and their penchant for false teachings. In chapter 6, let us read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings of Christ about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Excuse me. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But it, if it, it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And things that accompany salvation through, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. In having love which you have shown, or shown toward his name, in having ministered in, and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
Anytime we see a section of scripture or a chapter that starts with the word therefore, we need to pause. It is incumbent upon us that we first examine the preceding section in order to understand the basis for what we are about to read after the there, before the therefore, or after the therefore. Without reading and understanding the substance of that which comes before the conclusion, we imperil our understanding of the conclusion itself. In this case, here we really should start with reading chapters 1 through 5, but since I cannot give a three-hour sermon, we'll just move on. But we need to examine at least chapter 5 to gain a fullness of understanding of what is concerned about chapter 6. It is about what is communicated to us that we need to understand, but simply understanding the, ele- the crucial elements of chapter 5 is what we are going to focus on initially. In chapter 5, we see a single-minded focus and devotion to elaborating for us Christ's role as our high priest and who serves as the sole source of our eternal salvation. I want you to grasp that. The focus is on Christ as our high priest who is the sole source of our eternal salvation. When we understand Christ's role and work as our high priest through our faith in him, we will not only come to an understanding of the supremacy and sufficiency of his role as Savior, but it will also also birth in us a greater understanding and an abiding desire for growth and perseverance against all obstacles and difficulties in this life. In other words, I'm talking about assurance. In short, the role of the high priest from chapter 5 is to stand and make uh, stand between God and man where he intercedes for them. That's the role of the high priest. He offers up prayers, gifts, and makes sufficient sacrifices for sin for the people, as we see in chapter 1. This abiding activity of interceding for us to the Father is something which Christ is continuing to do to this day in heaven. We read in Hebrews 7, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who are drawn near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, we have a great high priest. We have an advocate. That alone should bring such assurance to our walk. And at times when our thoughts perplex us, when we come to experience some doubts, the things we see in this world, the things we see in the church, whatever it may be, we have a great high priest. This high priest intercedes for his people. Again, we read, from Hebrews 5, that Christ was taken from men from men, and appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God. We see that through this earthly life, God, Christ came to experience the weaknesses of being a human. He acted in perfect obedience in faith to the Father, and he offered himself as in suffering. Here is what's really astounding, at least in my view. He has qualified himself not only to be an acceptable high priest before the Father, but he himself became the very sacrifice itself. He is the lamb 
without blemish or spot itself. These are requirements to satisfy the demands of God's law because of our sins and our condemnation under God's wrath. The priest sacrifices himself on our behalf. This is something that Isaiah saw in 53 when he said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But this was also the very same thing that John the Baptist saw when he said the next uh, when our scripture tells us the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world i had the unique experience in the army of going to jordan uh, to visit some of my teams and the one leader of the team took me to the actual baptism site of jesus now i'm some bubbles or step on some toes here uh, but if you've been to the Jordan River where you know you you have on Israel side the big steps and whatever and that wasn't the actual baptism site you have to question why is a Jewish nation that imperils any sharing of Christianity spending tens of millions of dollars for some tourist attraction so people can be baptized there the actual site is actually 400 yards inside the country of Jordan on the other side. If we read in John chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus, uh, that Jesus went, excuse me, John, Jesus went to where John was baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And there's a site there where there's the remnants of a second century church that was built that was washed away in the flood. That exists, and I remember going up to that little spot where it's basically a spring that comes up and comes down, and the overflow goes into the Jordan River. This verse just immediately came to my mind. This is where it happened. This is where John the Baptist proclaimed those words. This is where the dove came down. And the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It was a very spiritual and moving point in time. But folks, this is our Lamb of God. This is our Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world so that you and I might be not only forgiven for our sins, but declared Righteous because of his righteousness accounted to us. This is crucial. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins and his perfect righteousness is all that is required for our eternal salvation. And that can only be received by faith alone. And I want you to hold on to that. As we look further in chapter 11, and here I'm going to tie into chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, let us read. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. This is a stern rebuke. For everyone who partakes only of milk and is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, he is still an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. And we see in this strong rebuke that people have neglected the teachings of Scripture. Folks, the same thing is true today. There are many people, I mean, you see it. When something attractive rises up in society, some wind and wave of teaching comes, how many people sitting next to you in the pew are no longer there? And let us not be counted among those who would leave the church and leave the things that we have been trained and raised in to chase after things that really bring shame upon Christ as what we have read. The situation here, though, is so dire that the author of Hebrews in verse 11 simply cannot proceed with teaching them any further, any of the greater things for their maturity or edification. It's like someone who says, Yes, I graduated from the first grade. And they're like, this is the 10th grade. (laughs) You haven't even had algebra. You haven't even had fractions. You know, I just, that is the situation. I mean, all you need to do is spend maybe 20, 30 minutes of social media in a Christian forum, and you'll see what I'm talking about. They ought to be teachers at this point in their walk with Christ. But instead, they require retraining. You know, the one, the one class I got a C in in seminary was Greek. Oh, that ate my lunch. And I just couldn't stand it. So I went to the professor and I said, I want to take the class again. He's like, what? (laughs) I'm sorry. I need to do better. So I took that class again. They still had to keep the C, but balanced it out with the A. I got the second time. But folks, we have to be more attentive to our spiritual growth. And that's hopefully a theme I'm going to start to embark on here shortly. We need to have a spiritual barometer. We need to be able to take a pulse of where we're at in terms of our knowledge of the things of God, particularly those things that pertain to our redemption. Indeed, this is a sharp sharp rebuke, and it indicates real problems with most of his audience. You know, I had Dr. R.C. Sproul for a few classes at RTS, and if you know R.C., if you've sat under his teaching or watched some of his videos, you know he pulls no punches at times. He will tell you like it is. I'm from New Jersey. I like that. That's how I grew up. That's how my father trained me. R.C. Sproul communicated this one time when he said, Here then is our real problem of negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. 
Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. Myself included, that is a mirror. I can easily look back and say, wow. And I remember when he said that in a class and that actually he you know, put, incorporated one of his books. That kind of puts that finger on the pulse, doesn't it? And this is something that we need to heed. Sometimes things in scripture are pretty deep to understand. Don't I, I understand that. There's been several times I've had to reread and reread and reread. Read Jonathan Edwards sometimes. You'll have to read some of those things four or five, six times. And it's like, okay, I think I've got it. Persistence in study pays off. But as a result, God's word tells us that our minds here for those people are not accustomed. The Greek word is aperios, or it just means lacking experience and ability to understand the word of righteousness. You know, years ago, I had a person, a contractor come to my house who says, I could do this work for you. And so when I asked, well, what's your previous work? He says, well, actually, this is my first time doing it. <laughs> I was like, have a good day. Here's a bottle of water. How many times have I done that? How many times have we all done that? The chastisement in this passage bears a striking fulfillment of an earlier exhortation which the author of Hebrews, he foresaw this, he issued in chapter 2, verse 1 actually, concerning those who would neglect the word of God. Quote, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. The strength of our faith is directly connected to our study of God's word because, as the scripture says, that's how we build our faith, is by hearing and hearing of the word of God, is of God's study. Brothers and sisters, many, question, many Christians persistently suffer doubts and crippling uncertainties. Maybe it's a lack of joy because of their weakness in faith. Uh, which has not been strengthened due to a willful negligence of the word of God and prayer in their personal discipline or their attendance to church where they, where they deny themselves the real spiritual benefits of the ordinary means of grace in communion and worship with other saints and fellowship. Those are the things God has called us to. Those are the things that God says, I will bless you and I will mature you. Give attention to these things. They are principal to our worship service together. Five years ago, I embarked on a study of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And I thought, three years, I'm going to do this in three years. This is five years later. <laughs> and I'm still in Ezekiel. Because what I'm learning is I have to take my time with a great many passages, breaking out commentaries. Uh, I try to do a chapter, but sometimes I can't. But what I am finding is an enormous reward in my own walk that I wish I had done many years before. Yet nonetheless, folks, we are saved as, excuse me, um, the ordinary means of grace. Yet these people that he's talking about are saved 
their salvation is dependent not on the weakness that they experience, but again, because of their salvation is grounded on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is currently and always has been making intercession for them. Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, 79, the question reads, may not true believers, by reason of their imperfections and many temptations and sins, overtake them in faith and fall away from the state of grace? Well, here's their answer. True believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God and his decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, his continual intercession for them, and the spirit and the seed of God abiding in them, can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through their salvation of them. You can say brilliant right now. Except that's not for me. That is for God's word. Now we turn to chapter 6, because that's the background for it. The necessity of teaching, elementary teachings, and the call to maturity. I titled this one section for myself, it quote, Secretor Fundamentum. Nice Latin term, because it means several things. Number one, foundations are essential for what comes next. If you see a foundation out in the woods someplace for a house, you're like, hmm, someone forgot to do some more stuff here. For years in our house, we had beautiful forest behind us, you know, 200 acres. Well, as soon as we came back from Scotland, that all got torn down, and they're all building houses now right behind us. And I would always go out there and watch them pour foundation and how they poured it, the care, meticulous craftsmanship because it's all being poured for one th Let's get this thing ready for what comes next. Yes, some of us are at a place where we need to give greater attention to the foundational teachings, the elementary teachings of scripture, but those are given to us in order to prepare us for those things that are yet next to come. Foundations also demand further building on top of those foundations themselves. They are useless alone. Now concerning foundations, number one, they cannot be replaced. You cannot just build something on the ground without a foundation. When Celia and I were first married and uh, we lived in Florida and we inherited some guy's you know, tin metal shed in the back one of the lighter hurricanes came, and I remember watching the storm through my sliding glass window and just watching a tin shed just whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm just waiting for that thing to become a missile. Right, next day I went out there and sure enough, I just lifted, opened that door. There is there, there was a wooden floor. That was it. I could push that thing up and I did, and the whole shit tilted back. And I replaced it with something solid. I built it myself, did a great foundation. And the very next year, we had three hurricanes in the matter of four weeks. And one of them, Charlie, about 125 mile an hour. And I remember looking at that new shed and didn't even budge. Because we built it right. Foundations cannot be neglected. They require continual attention and inspection. You all have homes, right? How many of you had to crawl under that home if you have crawl space to inspect things? Our home we built in 2005, especially coming back from Scotland, 
I was like, okay, let's see what's happening underneath the house. Maybe cracks have developed. Maybe there's some work that needs to be done. And there was some work, but the foundation was still solid. But folks, we need to continue looking at our foundations. Here, the scripture mentions repentance and faith. Let me just indulge right here. One of the things I see very problematic in American Christianity, and probably worldwide as well, we need to go back and visit repentance and what faith is. We don't neglect these things once they have been established in our life because we go back to them and read them again and gain greater edification. But I noticed that with what's all going on, especially with the churches and this whole revoice thing, you know what I'm talking about, and the, 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 the move of homosexuality into many churches, I discovered something that I thought was absolutely horrifying. 21 years has been the last time that a substantive work on repentance was published by an evangelical publisher. 21 years ago. What was even more horrifying is I went to three American publishers and asked them if they were going to publish anything. And their answer was twofold. One, why? And the second, we already have stuff from years before. And I thought, does it not surprise us that we don't even know what mortification is these days. We don't even, people think repentance is, okay, I'm just going to keep myself from um, indulging my sinful nature. That's not repentance. Repentance includes mortification, which we put our sinful desires to death. And we engage in vivification, pursuing the things of the new man. We're in a place right now where we need to look at our foundations. Because we have Christians growing up and coming to faith who are not being taught what repentance is, which is an elementary teaching of the scripture uh, for the Christian faith, because their pastors probably don't even know what repentance really is. That's the state of affairs that we find ourselves in. Brothers and sisters, let us not be like that. Concerning those who fall away. Now, here I want to engage, and I want you to see this because I think this is critical. He then turns, he says, instructions of washing, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are all basic elementary teachings. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the good word of God and the powers in the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Notice the change in pronouns. Verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 3, he's talking about you. He's talking to the believers. Starting in verse 4, he's now talking about those and them. Do you see that distinction? If we are in and amongst those in verses 1 through 3, then let us take note. He is diverting our attention to talk about people who have fallen away 
And that doesn't mean that's going to include you at any time. There is a significant shift in pronouns. And notice that he's talking about those who have fallen away. Not if. In the author's mind of Hebrews, to the audience he's talking to, that's not a question. It is not a question of if you fall away. Because he knows and understands you're not going to. Why? Jesus is our high priest. Our salvation is dependent upon his person and his work. And he is making intercession for us. Again, you cannot grasp this unless you grasp chapter 5. It's crucial. He talks about neglecting what was once given. He talked about having once been enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, powers of the age to come. Boy, that sounds like Christians, doesn't it? Those are experiences we all have. Well, salvation is not based on experience, but it's just saying, hey, let's, let's take a look at all of this stuff. Well, then who is he talking to? Because any, any one of us can say, yeah, I experienced that too. There is a parallel here that we need to understand in describing what these experiences mean. Several pretty sound authors, and one I'll throw out to you is Gerhardus Voss in his um, uh, uh, commentary on Hebrews, drew a parallel and he says, just who is he talking to? He's talking to God's covenantal community who are Hebrews. And he's drawing a parallel between both those who were in the Exodus, because he's talking to Hebrews, they understand Israeli history. And the parallel which exists between those in the Exodus and those in the early church, who were nonetheless unbelievers. Now, what's he trying to flesh that out here a little bit? How many people in the Exodus you think were truly saved? They belong to God's covenantal community for sure. But just because they belong to God's covenantal community did not mean that they were all truly saved. How many times did God have to bring judgment during that 40 years? And even kept them there for 40 years. And only one person of the millions that left Egypt made it out. Not even Moses. Who, who remembers who, who that person was? John. Joshua, you taught him well. There are lots of people who experience things in church. This does not mean that they are saved. There is a parallel here, again, that we need to take account of. Again, the author of Hebrews is talking to Hebrews. The point here is that, like in the Exodus, there are many people today who have had many real experiences of God's saving power in the midst of his people, the church, experiences that they will even participate in because of their affiliation with the people of God's covenantal community, and yet they remain unsaved. But at some point, because they are unsaved, they will walk away from the church thinking they have grown beyond that. I remember one lady years ago who stopped coming to our church, and I engaged her and I said well we're wrong and this was like a couple years later and for her it was like well you know that was an early season in my life and I've grown beyond that 
That's exactly who he's talking about here. Folks, no. <laughs> these are folks who never were truly saved in the first place. And, they would, and there will be something in the world that will get their attention and they will go you know, jump on being a cause or whatever else, and they'll leave the church. And, you know, we don't want to presume that they're unsaved. We want to try to reach out to them and invite them back and to talk and discuss. But, folks, if their hearts have always been regenerate, at some point they will leave. Not that, again, not just because when people leave the church does not mean that they were unregenerate. Okay, let's not do that. But we need to face facts that in every congregation in America and the world, there are always going to be people who experience these type of things. And yet they are not saved. They will walk away from the church. And I wonder how many people who have reported to left the church recently for good have ever were saved in the first place. They were mem- some of them were made members. Some of them were duped into thinking that just because they were members, baptized, tasted the Lord's Supper, went to Bible conference, and even generally witnessed some changing, God's changing power in the lives of others, that they were truly saved. The startling thing I find here is from seven, actually six, but he describes it in seven and eight is that these are folks, yes, who will eventually leave the church and express their hurt and moved on. Again, that was an early period in my life. But the terrifying thing of the reality of apostasy is that it will be impossible for them to come to repentance again. To me, that sends shivers up my spine. And it, I, I just... Lord, please, do not let that be me. I want to trust on you and your work on the cross. I am just as much of a sinner. I'm from New Jersey, okay? I'm just as much a sinner as most of you. I depend on Christ every single day to strengthen, give me assurance, to study his word. I don't ever want to be a person that is ever, how, how awful that must be. There is no possibility of change, and their destruction is, quote, worthless, or, but their destruction is assured as both worthless and cursed. That's who God has assigned them to be in this text. However, in verse 9, let's look at that. Here's some more good news. But, beloved, we are concerned, we are convinced of better things concerning you Things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. What do you see here? Another change in pronouns. As a matter of fact, we also see an affectional term. Beloved. Now he's not long, no longer calling them they or them or those. He's back to you. I find great comfort in that. I don't know about you. But that's what he says. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and love that you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Saints, God knows where you're at. He knows who you are. Sometimes it's hard through the difficulties of life to understand that. But he calls him beloved. And again, he is focusing 
on who they are, who they have been. And he expresses a sure confidence in these final matters, that God is not unjust, and that he will not forget your work for the kingdom, and the love you have shown to his name in your persistent ministering to his saints, including cutting the yard. I used to be a landscaper. Talk to me later. I'll show you how to pop a wheelie on those. Never mind. Don't do that. The deacon's like, ah! His final exhortation is that we persist in our diligence to keep before us the full assurance of hope that we have in Christ. Nurture that hope. Seek a deeper understanding of that assurance. This exhortation concurs with Peter's counsel in 2 Peter 1.10 when he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and choice. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And if we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Wow. That's just wow in my book. That's a big wow. Why? Because this is what Christians do. We seek to know our triune God through Christ in his word through prayer, communion, worship, fellowship, and all the other means of grace. I love the way Titus chapter 2 puts it. For by, grace, for by the grace of God has appeared bringing, people, uh, bringing salvation to all people, instructing them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, in a godly manner in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, redeemed us from every lawless deed, and purified for himself a people for his own possession who are eager for good deeds. Do you want to be that person? I do. Then let us be diligent and pursue that with every opportunity that we have. I don't want to write a lot more. Well, Go see him. He'll teach you. I mean, folks, even the most, you would think, menial tasks have significant meaning in the economy of God's people. It doesn't matter what it is. Concerning application, the critical need for us is not only to be unduly perplexed in such questions in us to gain a greater understanding of the person of Christ and the role of Christ in our case and many others. We need to understand Christ as our high priest. But let me invite you also, and this is what I did years ago, let us study Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. He is our prophet because he reveals himself the Father, the Holy Spirit, their ways to us. That's what a prophet does. He is our priest, making intercession for us all the time at the right hand of God. He does not sleep or slumber. He is diligent to do that for us because of his great love for us. And he is our king. He is ruling and reigning 
over all things. If we are doubtful by some situations in life, let us secure ourselves in our understanding of his providential nature. That yes, there is an invisible hand at work, and sometimes we just need to say, you know what? I'm just going to wait and see what God does with this situation. And I'm just going to trust him. The failure to understand Christ as our, our high priest will inevitably result in the type of questioning people that we have before us in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Again, let me say that. A lack of understanding of Christ as our high priest and what he does in that role, that our salvation making sacrifice, will inevitably lead us to the type of understanding that we see in those that he calls them. Number two, we need to seek to possess a personal knowledge of Christ and a genuine trust in him. This knowledge is more than a mental understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith, as important as they are. Folks, I've had unbelievers rightfully quote for me doctrines of the Christian faith. There is a mental ascent here. But this is talking about a personal knowledge and a genuine trust in Christ. Find out what that true saving knowledge of Christ is. And what are the results? What all that to look like in my life? Get with other brothers and sisters. What, what, what does? What is the life of a Christian? Here's a little personal thing for me. And I think Andy, you probably talked about this at one point. There's a book, Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. As you can see, it's well used. Pages haven't fallen out yet. 29 years ago, I picked this up. And when I first read through it, it actually brought a lot of insecurity into my life. I was a young Christian, and I didn't see a whole lot of myself in these pages. Since then, every year in my birthday month of March, this is my devotional book. And I've read it every year for 29 years. That's why it looks like this. I bought a new one, but I, I like my highlighting. Folks, I'm, I don't know whether I'm honored or blessed, but more and more over the years, I'm starting to see myself more and more on these pages. Of what does a godly man look like? I remember one of the first things, I actually wrote it down here. This terrified me. 29 years ago, I did not want to be like this person. Thomas writes, the hypocrite is the most hated person on the planet. The wicked hate the hypocrite because he's almost a Christian. But God hates him because he's only almost a Christian. What barometer do you use? What measures in fellowship? Is your fellowship, you know, uh, just get together and have food, which is good. But is there actual some engagement? Is there some encouragement that you receive from one another? That you have meaningful, biblical discussions about where are we right now? Where are you right now? 
in your understanding of Christ. But lastly, I encourage you to seek an understanding of what true assurance of salvation looks like in the Christian walk. Then pursue a found, the strength and that foundation of it in the scriptures. No, a genuine Christian cannot fall away because, as I often say, my salvation does not depend upon my grip on God, but upon his grip on me. He's not going to let me go, no matter how much I rebel. I think some guy Jonah tried that one time. <laughs> Didn't work out too well. But folks, there is an incredible wealth of assurance that we can mine from the scriptures and a great many other areas when we come to understand who Jesus is as our great high priest. And when we do, we will not be perplexed with verses and passages like Hebrews 6, which many Christians throw out all the time. See, a Christian can fall away. But now you're equipped to answer that question differently and to bring a greater understanding to that person and help them in their scriptural walk. No Christian should walk about on this planet with any sense in their mind of, I hope I don't fall away. Rather, they should be equipped and strengthened with all the muster of the assurance that Christ avails to us because he is our high priest. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this body of Christians, your people. This is your church. And I just ask that however flawed my uh, preaching is, that you would make up for it in a way that only you can. Lord, this is your word. Build up this body, every single person, whether the person is the strongest in the faith or the weakest in the faith. Lord, we thank you. And now we want to consecrate this uh, congregation to you, hand them back to you. Um, that they would find and search for you and come to an understanding of what it means that you are our great high priest interceding for us even today at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you so much and help us to rejoice in that message.